the United States and Canada recognize Black History Month, but its founder hoped for a different future for Black history. Carter G. Woodson, the Harvard-educated historian who established Black History Month, hoped Black history would become so ingrained in American history that Black History Month would be unnecessary. But in 1926, when he began Negro History Week, the second week in February, he had two objectives. To prove to white America that Blacks had played important roles in the creation of America and deserved to be treated equally as citizens. And second, to increase the visibility of Black life and history at a time when the media was portraying the Black community negatively with anti-Black racist imagery, like Black caricatures, Black-faced minstrel shows, and films like the 1927 hit, The Jazz Singer. In 1976, Woodson's Association for the Study of American Life and History was such the annual theme for every Black History Month, lobbied for Black History Week to become a month, and got President Gerald Ford to make the first proclamation. Every president since then, except for Donald Trump, has proclaimed the new theme annually. Congress officially recognized Black History Month in 1986. Black History Month is often controversial with calls for Whiteness History Month or Confederate History Month to others, including some black people saying it's outlived its usefulness or that it's antithetical to American values. But despite the official designation, there are no federal requirements for teaching black history in school curriculums. And on an average, less than 9% of history class is spent on black history. In some states, it's completely ignored. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of You and the Law Podcast Show. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, Virgil Green. And as always, I got to introduce the man who goes by the name of Chief, Chief Swaggy One, the Beast. What's going on, brother? Not a whole lot, brother. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And hello to everybody. Hello to our to our audience, man, and happy Black History Month. Yeah, man. We are kicking off. This is the first day of Black History Month, and uh, we've got uh, a month full of, uh, of guests that are going to be coming on throughout uh, the month, and so we're looking forward to, to having those guests on as we um, celebrate Black History Month. And Keith, as you know, it it shouldn't which just be celebrated, which you celebrated quite a few in your life. Probably about what, 75 of them? 75? What, what does that mean? Like age wise or something? I'm just do saying I look celebrated 75? Don't ask that question because you might do get I, the answer look, that you don't want. Do I look 75? I told you don't ask that question. Well, you know, I'm just going to ask the question, brother. I, I'm just going to ask. I have no comment. I'll, I'll, I'll let the audience. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, if audience, if you want to, you know, the chat room is open. If you want to put in the chat, you know, if you think that I look, you know, that I've had 75 years of black history, let me know. Or if you think my co-host has, uh, no. has 75 plus, uh, let us know. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we want to know. Yeah. Virgil. You are old enough to be Black History. Well, you know what, man? Black History is good. It is black history. Black History is power, brother. It is, and, and I and, think that you probably was there when the when the bill was signed, when the uh, when it first came out, uh, the idea came up. So uh, we need well, to before months is out. We need you to come on and and talk about that. What it was like back in the 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 nineteen tens. 20th. Oh, okay. So we're going there. 
we go on there? Okay. Well, I mean, Hello, you know. Everybody. Hello, everybody, because we're just not talking about anything. Hello, everybody. <laughs> but as you know, we opened up the show uh, with an audio clip that that uh, gave some history behind Black History Month. How, who was the, the main person who uh, was instrumental in the Black History Month? And, you know, surprisingly, Keith, I did not know this, that uh, I believe it was President um, Ford who was the first president to make this a uh, to, to sign this into law where Black History Month would be recognized. And I think I want to remember, I think something went before Congress in 1986 uh, that. I guess maybe formalized it, but it was interesting to know that President Gerald Ford, who was, you know, uh, who played the, who was the first president to, to to play a role in that. And every president since then has acknowledged Black History Month, except one. And can you guess who that is? We're not, we're not going there today. No, we, we're not. But, you no. know, I, and, and, and I want to say this uh, because you know, there's been a lot, and we're not going to get into the politics of it because our podcast show is 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 Absolutely. totally opposite. But I have to say this, Keith. I think a lot of people I've heard people say, "Hey, you know, this man did a lot for HBCUs." I don't think there's anything that this man did for Black History Month. He didn't even acknowledge it. He didn't do anything for HBCUs. So, you know, I think even within our own culture, you've got some Black people who say. Oh man, he did great things for Black History. I mean, for HBCUs. If, if you're that strong about Black uh, HBCUs, what did he do that you can show? And what did he do to even acknowledge Black History when he didn't even acknowledge it the whole four years he was in office? So well, I think first of all, you have to understand uh, the uh, the purpose behind HBCUs. You know, first of all, why did HBCUs? HBCUs get started, and, and we all know that 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 reason. Uh, and so it has uh, put an amazing education. My my mother, my uncle were products of HBCUs. We all have relatives, uh, friends, and that have been part of HCUs or currently a part of HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I've just found out here recently is that my my university that I graduated from, Texas A&M Commerce. Uh, university will be uh, has signed a contract to play Gremlin State University for two years, two consecutive years. Uh, it will be in commerce this year, and in 2025, it'll be in in Gremlin. So, very mm-hmm. excited, very excited about that. Had an opportunity to go to the uh, <clears throat> Gremlin State Alcorn State game. I'm sorry, yeah, Jackson State Alcorn State game uh, in the uh, latter part of in November. So the, the the history and the festivities and the educations that HBCUs provide are are amazing are, are amazing and and, and finally uh, the recognition is being um, uh, given. So well, it doesn't matter if one person does not recognize that. That's fine. There's too many. There's too many examples out here where HBCUs have been and continue to be productive. Uh, in the fabric of this nation. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Keith. So, brother, tonight our our uh, topic, our podcast topic is silencing the history of policing in America. 
And uh, so I think some people will say, what is that? What does that mean? Solacing the history of policing in America. Uh, I want to hold on just a second. I think I'm I'm actually on our live. We're actually live on LinkedIn and I was checking our live feed on LinkedIn and accidentally uh, logged in. But uh, if you're on LinkedIn, listen to us. Uh, you know, I think there may be a feature where you can uh, send us a message in the chat. I can't see you up on the screen, but if you're on LinkedIn, we want to definitely thank our those who are tuning in on LinkedIn Live. Uh, I got a, a friend of mine that's a noble lady who, Felicia Cross, who reached out to me and said she's got a a topic for us. So we hopefully we can get her on the podcast, Keith. Uh, she is the, uh, I think she has a community engagement director for the city of Seattle. Uh, so uh, Felicia, if you're listening to us on LinkedIn, we want to thank you and everybody else. Uh, but I will definitely get with you and uh, uh, talk to you about getting you on our podcast. But, you know, silencing the history of policing in America, Keith, you know, we go back to, uh, you know, just, Things that have happened in in recent years, and we go back to uh, to the civil rights era. Um, not a lot has really been talked about the the history of policing in the black community. Mm-hmm. And I think it was to me, you know, when I talked to you about this, we're starting Black History Off Month, and how do we uh, have a, a positive conversation, but also bring up some some trauma that has happened in the black community with policing and how do we uh, move forward with that? Uh, because there is some silence in the history related to police brutality. Well, Virgil, we have to look at, and um, this is just facts. Uh, we have to look at the history of law enforcement, where it evolved from. Um, you know, we, we always talk about policing evolving from, the Metropolitan Police in in London, you know, Sir Robert Peel, <clears throat> and I've got a video I want to show on that too. Yeah, but we talk yeah. about that, and uh, but you know, we don't talk about what was the what was the formation and how did American policing start, and and it all started, uh, you know, with the slave patrols and, and mm-hmm. the Klan and the highwaymen. I mean, that's those that is facts. That's yeah. not something that we're making up. And so you have to understand for many years, you had police officers who were part of these organizations leading up into the 60s, 70s. And we have found lately, um, especially with the January 6th insurrection, that there were members of law enforcement that were part of those groups still now. Mm-hmm, and correct. so, um, you know, when you when you have that occurring in a profession, uh, there is going to be a wall of silence because you can't tell me that other officers are, are uh, who are working with these individuals, they don't know. Uh, you can't tell me that that it's so secretive that someone doesn't know what this person is doing, who they put organization they belong to. So it's 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 that's where the problem is. The yeah. problem is that it's so many people. Well, there are those individuals who are still part of the profession. And that's why it's so difficult in so many, t- uh, sometimes uh, in order to, uh, for us to understand or clear up uh, what's going on. There's a pushback from a, from a, from a group. Yeah. 
Well, Keith, you know, is is good you brought that up about the history where policing has come from. And I want to play uh, uh, a video clip that addresses the how America's slavery helped create modern day policing. Uh, it may be about a six, five or six minute video clip. I may not show all of it, but I think it is really important to to listen to this because it puts it into uh, perspective of policing. How did modern day policing uh come about in the United States and it came out of out of slavery. So uh, let's watch this video and then on the other side of it we'll we'll talk about it. But if you're watching us on YouTube, we want to definitely thank you all, but I don't think there's a feature foot that you can uh, send us a message in the chat room. Uh, but again we want to thank you all. But let's let's watch this video about the uh, how American slavery helped create modern day policing in America supposed to protect and serve but has that ever been the case for black americans today's baggage how slavery helped create modern day policing let's take it back to 1619 when a group of several hundred africans were kidnapped from their village forced onto a portuguese ship only to be stolen by english pirates at sea after a voyage filled with horror and death What's referred to as some 20 and odd Negroes arrived in the New World and were sold in a place now known as Virginia. Yes, enslaved Africans were in the New World before your beloved pilgrims. These few Africans survived the perils of the transatlantic slave trade, which had been underway since the 1500s in the Western Hemisphere. During the slave trade, Africans were captured and forcibly brought to the Americas in ginormous numbers. Historians say that from 1526 to 1867, something like 12.5 million enslaved people were stolen from Africa and journeyed to the Americas. Only about 11 million arrived alive. Back to 1619. Those who did survive the horrors of the slave trade and were brought to what would become the U.S. were also subjected to the first form of organized policing in the South, known as the Slave Patrol. In case you missed it, the slave patrol and slave catchers were the first form of organized police in the South. These watching as white folks first emerged in the colony of Carolina in the early 1700s and set the tone for policing as we know it. The slave patrol kept tabs on the whereabouts of the enslaved. And that meant if black men and women were off a plantation, then the slave patrol could demand to see a slave badge noting their occupation. Slave patrol could stop and search whomever's belongings just because. Now I wonder who that sounds like. Then there was the slave catchers. That role is pretty self-explanatory. Slave catchers chased and returned runaways. They also intentionally scared the bejesus out of the enslaved to instill a sense of fear and prevent revolts. There was some overlap between the role of the slave catcher and the slave patrol, but together they enforced the idea that black people were second-class citizens and that white people were the authority. And organized police departments, they enforced this racial hierarchy too. In South Carolina, for example, by 1837, there were dozens of officers in the Charleston Police Department whose jobs were essentially to monitor the enslaved. And though slavery was abolished after the Civil War, the spirit of tracking and policing black folks lived on. During the Reconstruction era, black codes were enacted with the quickness and they restricted how black folks could live their lives. David A. Harris is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. 
Harris specializes in law enforcement and race, so y'all know we're gonna have a lot to talk about. How do black people's relationship with law enforcement change after emancipation? Law enforcement often was cast in the role of enforcing Jim Crow laws and other kinds of laws aimed at maintaining uh, the racial caste system and at keeping black people, quote, in their place. So law enforcement, to the extent it existed, would be one thing for white people and another entirely for black people. It was aimed at maintaining uh, the racial separation that existed in their system of racial privilege for whites and uh, second-class, at best, citizenship for blacks. And this only exists in the South, there were certainly uh, law enforcement efforts that did the same thing in northern city towns. But in the South, the system of racism wasn't just upheld by law enforcement. Vigilante groups like the Ku Klux Klan played a massive role in terrorizing black communities with lynchings and other forms of violence. You would find uh, many powerful and prominent people uh, to have been members of the KKK, including law enforcement. You would think today nobody in law enforcement would want to be out front as a member of the AKK. They, of course, you wouldn't see that. But in those days, it was acceptable for um, many kinds of leading citizens to be involved, and law enforcement was no exception. Case in point, Hugo Black, an ex-Klan member who went on to become a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. I digress. So for the most part, it was the responsibility of the police to uphold the law of the land, which in the South meant enforcing segregation. Police were oppressive and violent. This was well documented during the civil rights movement when at times they wore riot gear while using hoses and dogs on peaceful protesters. Why is the imagery of the police dog so important? So you don't have to go far back into history to imagine people running away from slavery being tracked by dogs. But then we have actual documentary evidence in, the, uh, in which we see dogs used as instruments of law enforcement and utter terror and just as weapons in the civil rights era. It's a, uh, a weapon, literally, for law enforcement purposes, like a club or a gun would be. And it is also a message from history Dogs have been used before in contexts like this, and they're being used now. They sure are. This picture was taken just a few years ago in Ferguson. I think this is what they call deja vu. It's law enforcement who use dogs and other weapons of violence to instill fear in black people. But the irony is that trigger-happy policing is in part caused by stereotypical fears held by the officers themselves. Darren Wilson, the officer who shot and killed Michael Brown, use fear as a defense, likening the unarmed team to a demon. Police killings of unarmed black and brown people have gone on way before Michael Brown and sadly will continue after him. Police are two times as likely to use force against black and brown folks than white folks. We also know that policing tactics like stop and frisk as well as racial profiling are terribly discriminatory. Harris says that racial profiling by police has evolved to fit whatever agenda they might have against people of color in the U.S. Targeting black and Latinx people during the crack epidemic, Muslims after 9-11, and Central American migrants up until today. You know, I wanted to show a little bit of that clip, Keith, because I think it addresses some of the things that we're going to be talking about on tonight's podcast as we're talking about the silence 
silencing the history of policing in America. Uh, if you look back at, you know, some of the images that they showed, uh, some of the, those images are that we saw in the 60s are some of the same images that we are seeing in, in current times. Uh, you know, like, you know, they showed the image back in 63 with the dogs, uh, the same images you see we saw in Ferguson. So, you know, how, you know, we've always talked about history continues to repeat itself, but some kind of way, nobody has figured out how to stop that from happening, especially in policing where there has been so much documented events surrounding uh, police brutality in the black community. Well, yeah, Virgil, but I want to, I want to, I want to clarify something there. You know, when you, we talk about the 60s, 70s, 80s, we talk about Ferguson. I will say that the 21st Century Policing uh, Initiative uh, did, in the Ferguson After Action Report, I, I would uh, challenge anyone uh, who has not read that to read that report. Uh, and it basically, it was a roadmap on how to um, reallocate these resources. Um, you know, bottom line, now you've got Canine that are bomb dogs, explosive dogs, search dogs, attack, arrest dogs. So I think you are seeing a more organized and a more formalized when it comes to policies regarding the resources that we use in law enforcement. That still doesn't mean that the incidents aren't occurring. We saw one not too long ago uh, where you had state troopers who had a gentleman under control and another uh, jurisdiction's uh, canine uh, allowed the dog to uh, attack. attack. Yeah. So when you see those things, no matter how much you and I talk about it, not much how much um, literature comes out, the, it only takes that one incident for uh, the community, especially the communities of color, to not believe in what we're doing and believing that we are being fair and just and we do have procedural justice. The laws and the policies are there. Uh, are they being implemented properly? That's that's the that's what people want to know. Is there a certain way that police um, police police actually in this com- community, or do they police differently in this community based on someone's color, based upon someone's sexual orientation, uh, someone's nationality? Is that what's happening? And so, when you have an incident like we're still seeing so so do you think that's yeah that does bring up concern so do you uh, see that that there is a difference in policing where if you live in a certain part of of the city that you're in that you your policing is going to look different than the policing that's going to look different in a a predominantly uh lower uh, middle lower class of the city I think that all depends on who's leading that department. I say, you know, it's it's a fact that you do have to utilize certain resources in some areas that you uh, don't say case in point. You might have to have additional resources in an area that's having more vehicle burgers or more break-ins. But the, the problem with that is when you don't articulate that to the community of what you're doing. Do I believe that there are police departments, uh, Virgil, that because you live in a certain socioeconomic and because of the way you look, they believe that that there's pro- absolutely. I've I've had to call people on that. 
Uh, I had I've had to call people recently. Uh, my last job, you know, that that was being told in some briefings that, well, you know, you got to police this way here and we can't police this way here because people don't like us. That in itself is profiling. That in itself is an injustice. So, you 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 know, there is a I don't think anybody's going to argue with you that there are different resources that have to be utilized in different areas based on the type of crime that's occurring. But you have to explain that and you have to be able to know, you know, how to use those resources. Well, Keith, you know, example, let's say you have uh, uh, an increase in residential burglaries in a very uh, affluent neighborhood in your city. Now, you're going to deploy you're going to deploy more resources to try to uh, prevent some of these burglaries or to also to make some arrests. Now, you've got another problem in, in, in a, let's say, in the south part of the city where uh, it, it's, it's uh, maybe people driving without a license or there, there, there's pretty good data that shows a lot of people are driving without license or driving without insurance. Now, you put, which one are you going to put more resources in? to address this problem where you, you've got citizens who are complaining about their houses being broken into, or you look, are you saying, well, hey, we can make more arrests in, in this part of the city uh, versus we're not going to make any arrests in this, potentially you are. Yeah. It's about priority. It's about what do you, what's your priority? Your, you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish uh, because let's let's just face this, Virgil. Ninety-eight percent of the people out here committing crimes are driving vehicles to and from those those crimes. I mm-hmm. think if you the data, the data has to show that. Uh, if you're just in an area because you know that there's easy citations, because you believe that, uh, because in in certain states you have to have both license plates affixed to your car. So if you believe that that's an easy citation, that's why it's very 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 important not to set quotas. As a matter of fact. I believe in all 50 states, 52 states, it's against the law for uh, police departments to have quotas. When you start telling people, hey, I'm going to give you days off for this and days off for that, and you don't have a strategic plan, case in point, hey, we've been having a lot of burglaries in this area, okay? And we've been having a lot of traffic accidents in this area that have led to fatalities or serious injuries, especially around the schools and things like that. You can explain that to your community and you can explain that to your officers. But when you go in and you say, well, you know, um, such and such lives up in this area. This is a very wealthy area. So we don't want to we don't want them calling in and complaining about they don't see police presence. But over here, you just willy-nilly stopping people just because you can that's where the problem is mm-hmm. people want to be people want to be educated they want to be informed mm-hmm. on why you're doing and what we're doing and when you don't do that that's where it becomes a problem with with the perception and some people's reality but if you you know like i said before you're asking me absolutely i've heard it go on i've heard people yeah. say you gotta you gotta put this kind of resources You've got to be able to competently explain why you're doing it. You can't just put people in areas. If I can give you an example, we knew in a certain city that during the summer we were going to have a problem with traffic and cruising and caravanning. We knew that. We, based on the data, 
we knew that it was going to start out in a certain area, but we also knew that it was going to end up in another area. That's what intelligence is. That's what data is. So then you know how to deploy your resources. So when then people come and start complaining about you're not doing something or you're doing something, you can explain why. That's what we don't do on a regular basis, Virgil. We don't explain why. That yeah. doesn't negate the fact that you do have people out there that are wearing uniforms that do have prejudice, that are prejudiced, that have problems with the way people look. I mean, I've had people, I've heard people say, I don't want to work in that part of town. I've heard people say early in my career, well, I do want to work on that part of town because there's easy arrests and people run from you and that's what's fun. Yeah. So the, the chief sets the tone for that, man. The chief yeah. sets the tone. Yeah. Well, hey, Keith, I want to remind everybody that t- tonight's uh, topic uh, is silencing the history of policing in America as we uh, kick off uh, Black History Month. And Keith, uh, you know, do you see or have you seen uh, a trend where more police executives are having these conversation about the history of policing where policing has come from, why there's such a, uh, a, tr- a distrust, especially in the black and brown community with law enforcement. No. no. And I think that's no. why, you know, we talk about there's a silence. And why is there a silence? What, because what, what you- I, I'll tell you, now, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but man, this, this topic is very dear to me. And the reason why is because it's an uncomfortable discussion to have. Correct. Uh, there are there are police chiefs that don't know how to tell the story. They don't want to tell the story. They've been forbidden to well, tell the story. The, 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 and the other thing is there's a there's a there's a perception or let me let me back up. There are those who wear the uniform that when you start talking about civil rights, procedural justice, when you start talking about racial profiling, when you start talking about um, uh, uh, black uh, blacks being shot. Uh, they automatically assume that you're being that you're saying they're racist. So there's a there's a there's a lockdown of a, a percentage of police officers uh, that do not want to hear anything that they believe that this is strictly their perception. They're mm-hmm. not listening to the entire story. You have to have a chief, and I did this. I went I went back and I told I talk about the history of policing. As mm-hmm. we did at the beginning of the show, you have to have the right person who's teaching that. So you can't have a person who's never lived it, who doesn't, who's not a historian of law enforcement. Because exactly. if you're going to be a historian, you have to be a historian of everything from the start to the finish, what happened in between, how things happen. You can't, I can't come here and tell you that I'm a historic historian on the medical profession. I can't tell you that. I can tell you about some things, but I can't tell you. I'm on his because a historian is an expert. Mm-hmm. But if you but if you go back and you do your research and you're talking to the right people, you're able to provide an educated, educated information to those who you who work for you. I made sure that my training staff and all recruits coming into the department watched the documentary 13 and watched the movie Selma. What does that do? That talks about the history of law enforcement. That's all it is. Talks about it. It didn't mm-hmm. point out anybody particular. Neither it didn't point out anybody particular. It it said that this is the history of law enforcement toward uh, people of color, 
Mm-hmm. And what law enforcement was used for it's facts. So you can't get yeah. upset, but you have chiefs that don't want to deal with that. They don't want, they don't want the fallout from it. They don't want, and you know, it's well, just, that's it, just, that's it, what it, it is, man. Well, Keith, I'm going to ask you this, you know, we're just not just talking about, you know, white police chiefs. Uh, do no. you see, do you see black police chiefs who look like you and I, who are taking this, bringing this conversation in their communities, in their departments. So there is some type of effort to change the culture of policing. Because as we know, Keith, there are there's a lot of good men and women who put on a uniform every day, who are black, white, Latino, Asian, whatever. Every race is represented almost in law enforcement. The one thing that I don't see in our community are people who look like me and you having these conversations because we've got some departments across the country, such as Memphis, such as Atlanta, who are predominantly black police departments who have not had a good relationship with the black community and they're predominantly black. And so this isn't just, you know, a problem that the black community is having with white police departments. I think this is a problem that, Black communities are having with people who look like you and I, but we're not having these conversations about how do we change that? Because I'm going to go back, Keith, to a video clip that I played on the podcast show uh, last year about the black uh, sergeant in Atlanta who there was a female who was handcuffed. There was a female officer standing right beside him. He kicked the the female who was handcuffed in the face. I think he obviously, I think afterwards he may have been got disciplined or maybe terminated. Now, it was just done in such a way that was like this probably wasn't this guy's first time. But this was a black sergeant kicking a black woman with a black female watching it. And I just I don't, you know. I want to get your perspective. Do you see people who look like me and you having these conversations with people who like look like me and you and who people who don't look like us to say there are things that we got to improve? Do you know how to have that conversation? I think that's the biggest question. Do you know how to have that conversation? Do you know? Because when you start those conversations, it's going to cause a lot of questions. And once you start that conversation, you can't be uncomfortable answering those questions. Uh, There's going to be some really heated conversations. And a lot of times what I've seen is that it's based on the fact that a person doesn't know. So my thing is when people ask you questions, that's an opportunity for you to teach. And if you're going to be a teacher, you can't want to just hear the good things or I mean, you, you don't want to just be able to provide the positive things. You have to provide the positive negatives. I think mm-hmm. you just have people that don't know how to have those conversations. I think you have people who don't have the courage to have those conversations. I, I think that you have people that have been that are ashamed to have those conversations because, you know, one of the things I get so tired of hearing Virgil into the into our um, audience is that I hear people saying that's not going to that doesn't happen. I haven't seen that occur. Let me tell you something. You, you cannot <laughs> be a African-American or any person of color uh, or of females um, of, 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 of color that have never been 
um, that, that you've never experienced racism and hatred at some, some point. It may have not been. It's blatant. You know, we talk about the micro and the macro. It mm-hmm. may have been micro. But I hate to hear people say, well, I've never experienced that. Either you, either you, either you. You're dismissing it or. Dismissing it or you're afraid to talk about it. Yeah. And so you have to talk about it. And, and it's yeah. uncomfortable. But you have to talk about it, man. That's the that's the way it is. You have to inform. You are a leader. When you're when yeah. you're in a when you're a first line supervisor up to a chief, you're a leader. So you have to have those conversations. Yeah. Well, Keith, and as we talk about tonight's topic, uh, solacing the history of policing in America, and I have to ask you this question. You know, this has been going on for decades and decades. There's been some change, but we still see pockets of what we were seeing in the 50s and the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. We were in the 2000s. But nothing has, there's not just been where, you know, somebody says, hey, listen, this is unacceptable in our profession. What do we do to change this here? Uh, to where it, we won't be talking, the next generation won't be talking about it. Because you and I, you know, generation after generation has dealt with this problem and has seen this problem. But there is a, now here's a generation that's trying to silence it and say, well, that happened 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing that happened 30 years ago happened in recent times, we may not have seen firemen or police officers with water hoses spraying people in, in streets, but we have seen where our police departments have become much more militarized with equipment that you didn't see in the 60s and the 70s. You had to call in the military to see that type of equipment. Now, when you start talking about militarization, uh, I get it. And I think a lot of times that goes right in hand with the, uh, uh, when there's a, when they talk about uh, eliminating police and and reorganizing our, our police departments. So what, what, what are the terms I'm looking the two terms that were used last couple of years ago? Or, or you, you had people talking about defunding the police. Defunding. And, yeah. and then the other one is... Um, uh, Oh, whatever. But one is totally getting away with police. And the other one is taking what you have and working on it to make it better. And mm-hmm. so I think when you start talking about militarization, it comes down to the usage and also where that where that uh, that equipment came from and what's the purpose of that. Uh, and so that's where it takes a, a chief, you know, to say this is what we're going to use. This is why we're going to use it. You know, you can't allow your police departments and go out and buy military surplus items that are fully automatic weapons, or you can't do it by tanks. And, and, and when I say tanks, I'm not talking about your armored uh, vehicles that police use to rescue. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actual tanks. I'm talking about submachine guns. I'm talking about helicopters from the military and things like that. Military mm-hmm. surplus. That's what that says. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, when you're buying that stuff, do you have a policy in place? <clears throat> Let me say this too, Virgil. You know, we talk about things that happened 30, 40 years ago, but it seems like since the Rodney King situation. So we're not going to we're going to move forward from the 90s. Or it looks like every five to 10 years, 
there's an egregious act uh, of police violence or police excessive force um, involving a person of color. So how can you forgive it when this occurs? You know, well, you the, only reason the, the only reason the Rodney King situation was not um, did not ring a bell with a lot of people. Now, we didn't have the social media uh, that we have now. We didn't have social media platform. But mm -hmm. you have to understand when you look at Rodney King and you look at the George Floyd, the thing about Rodney King is there was a delay there when it regardless of when people saw it. OK, so the video um, that the, that the right. citizen shot. Yeah. But George Floyd, millions of people saw George Floyd's Instant, life instantly. leave his body uh, minute to minute, second yeah. to second. Yeah. So so that's the thing. And, and we got to get people to understand that that's a horrific scene that kids saw. That's a horrific scene that continues to be played over. We also saw the young man in Minneapolis get shot. So we're starting to see that stuff. And yeah. That's what keeps it going. But we continue to have those incidents occur, whether it's five years, whether it's 10 years, but keep going and keep putting this into people's mind. And you've got a different generation of individuals now that um, social media is, is the lifeline of, of, of the of the two youngest generations. And they see it yeah. and, and they and, and, they, and they're going to talk about it. Well, you know, Keith, and I think, you know, as we talk about silencing the history of policing in America, it's all we have not in the in the law enforcement community. I think that there's a lot of ownership of what has not uh, uh, what hasn't happened right. Uh, we have not got a lot of things right, uh, and I think this because we've been silent about it. And you know, you talked about there's chiefs who don't want to step out there and say anything about it, or they're being told don't step out there and say anything about it. But the more silence you are about a problem, that problem is not going to go away. And we, this has been going on, even we go back to how modern day policing came about with the slave patrols. There was silence about, hey, this is how we're, what we're doing to black people. Every generation, every everybody has, has been silent about it. No, they haven't. You don't think so? Absolutely not. There, how can it be silence when people know what's going on? Now, well, are you talking about saying, silence on the receiving end or from those who are on the receiving end? Or are you talking about those silence on the ones that are performing the act? Because it's never been a secret. No, it's never been a secret. But I think those on the performing act of the silence that did, we see this happening. Mm -hmm. There's pictures, there's videos. We see this happening, but... There's never been a an effort to say we're not going to continue to police this way across the United States. There's not a very uh, every state every everybody has different policies uh, to I, go I, by. I, dis I disagree with you. Okay, it's been it's been said. Well, major, well, city, major city chiefs, which is it, a consortium of fifty three. Of the, the 53 major cities uh, in the in the nation, okay, uh, they they they've established, they established that uh, they did address it. They did acknowledge and address it. So it's been addressed. Uh, Mid-sized city chiefs uh, uh, that are departments believe 300,000 or uh, population 300,000 or less. That has been addressed. It's been stated. 
you and I were at a team conference. Oh yeah, yeah. The statement's been made, Virgil. So we got to we got to stop. There hasn't been there hasn't been any action. There's been action. There just there hadn't been any consistent action, and like you said, there's been no governmental insurance that these actions take place. Now, what I will tell you is, in the last three years, three to five years. We have seen some major convictions handed down and we have seen an increase in, in, in consent decrees. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. Bob, Bob Scales was here and we, we talk and I totally get it. I totally get it. I think that the consent decree is sometimes not used properly, yeah. but the system is there. The, the system yeah. is there. It just, you have to, in order for something to work, you know, you can't, cl- you can't <clears throat> wash clothes in a, in a brand new washing machine and you just got water and detergent in there, but you don't put the clothes in there. So that's what I'm talking about. You've got the system in place, but if you're not putting the data, we had the police data initiative where this was free, where departments, you know, had to, departments volunteered to put their use of force information and demographics information on their website. Mm-hmm. You got to stop asking these departments to do that stuff. You got to start mandating, mandating. Mandated. Yeah. You yeah. have to. You have to. We mandate UCR. Yeah. We mandate on college universities. We mandate the Clary Act where you have yeah. to produce that. So why not can we not mandate? Uh, uh, you know, I think when you start saying, okay, you get this police department, look at case in point, Mississippi. There there's there's we've done those stories. Oh, there's numerous, yeah. yeah. There's a numerous um a numerous amount of police departments in Mississippi that should be closed down. Yeah. Completely dissolved, start over or saying we're going to have the sheriff's department or the highway patrol take over law enforcement in these areas. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that. We don't. Police departments don't get closed down. No. They get slaps on the wrist. What? Police chiefs get fired. People get fired. But they do not eliminate police departments, even no matter, no matter how egregious the cases that they are, they've committed. Yeah. Thank you. You know, you mentioned something uh earlier about, you know, how things have changed and we're seeing some changes. I've got a, uh, the next video I want to show uh, talks about police brutality impacts on the black community. It also in this video, it talks about what happened in Memphis with uh, Tyree Nichols and the outcome that that had. So uh, let's watch this uh, video and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Last month, millions of Americans watched the body cam footage of Memphis police beating Tyree Nichols, leading to his death. That incident, just the latest in a long history of controversy surrounding use of force policies around the country. 23 ABC's Dominic Lavignier spoke with a community member about how videos like this one have impacted him and whether watching them brings justice or more harm to the black community. She joins us now live in studio, Dominique. This isn't the first time local residents watched a video like this. Tyree Nichols named top tops the list of many victims like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, leaving many concerned. It could be me. It could have been me. It could have been me. That's what Bakersfield resident Edward Robinson first thought when he unexpectedly saw the video of Tyree Nichols' death while scrolling on Instagram following the release of the body camera footage by the Memphis Police Department. I didn't think I was actually going to see the full beating, but uh, I saw it and uh, 
I will say that I, I had a feeling similar to whenever I watch a movie about slavery. On one end, um, I'm enriched and I feel like, no, this needs to be shown, right? On the other end, uh, I, I feel, uh, I feel uh, kind of becoming enraged. I become upset. And this isn't the first time the public has seen footage of the deadly use of force against black people. In California, black people are overrepresented in police use of force incidents. The state's public policy institute saying they account for nearly 20% of serious injuries and fatalities, while only making up less than 6% of the population. Robinson says in each case, he immediately thinks of the families. This person is somebody's son. This is somebody's grandson. You know, I, I just go right there. You know, and uh, I think of how tremendous a loss would be um, in my family. All I want is my baby brother back. These officers got to understand that, you know, that could have been your brother, your little brother. Tyree could have been your little brother. Robinson says he revisits the conversations with his brothers and colleagues to make sure they're okay. But that check-in always ends with what needs to happen next so they don't have to see another video like this again. Mental health expert Lauren Dean says black and brown people must prioritize their mental health, especially after incidents like this. It impacts us because we could see ourselves, right? We could see our family, we could see our history. And Dean says watching these videos can lead some to question their safety, resulting in a physical release of cortisol and adrenaline that can lead to anxiety and depression. And she recommends that viewers engage in activities that increase happiness hormones like walking, journaling and reading. And if it's needed, getting professional help. Because of an experience called linked fate, Dean says many people of color feel an intense connection to the victims in videos of police brutality. In some instances, I can see how one can see it as modern day lynching easily. Um, back during slavery times, there were pictures taken of slaves hanging from a tree. There was articles written about slave masters who's lynched husbands, wives. We've seen it. And now we're just saying it live on TV, and so it impacts us. Dean says if the videos encourage you to participate in peaceful protests, then they can be productive. But she says if they produce feelings of aggression towards law enforcement, viewers should watch with discretion. Patrick Jackson with the NAACP in Bakersfield says he saw the video unexpectedly as he prepared to speak about it following the press conference two weeks ago. Although he says he was shocked to see the video, he thinks it's necessary to bring change. It's almost like a catch-22. Um, we think that we shouldn't see it because it's so um, heart-wrenching, but it's also necessary for us to be able to see the change. It even goes back to Dr. King on Bloody Sunday. Um, it was televised that people were getting shot and killed um, marching over the bridge. And so when you see those things happen, um, people start to move in a different way. It's not reality if you don't see it. Jackson says these instances of violence against people of color have happened for years. But now the videos provide evidence of these injustices. Jackson says enacting legislation like the George Floyd Act and holding officers accountable will help bring justice to those affected. While Robinson says the public needs to see these videos, he doesn't completely agree. I don't think any single piece of legislation is going to solve it. I think this is a cultural issue. You know, um, we got to change the culture. We got to have these advisory committees. We got to make ethical considerations and stronger, deliberate efforts to reduce harm. You know, Keith, one of the, the things that I thought was thinking about when watching that was the Bloody Sunday in, in Selma. You know, there was an effort back then by 
the law enforcement officials to silence that to where people outside of, of Mississippi wouldn't see that. But when it was those images were shown around the world, you couldn't silence what they were doing in Selma, what they were doing in Montgomery. No, you couldn't. And I want to, um, I want to once again, man, praise my frat brother, uh, the late uh, John Lewis. Um, he, he is captured in one of those videos uh, on Bla- on bloody Sunday. Uh, if it had not had been for him and many others uh, that uh, were injured or lost their lives uh, and they had not been consistent in pushing the word, those pictures never mm-hmm. probably never would have been shown or they would have been shown much later. But, you know, the gentleman in the uh, the young man in the video said it's not just one thing that's going to solve this. I just think I've said this before. When we make um, two or three steps forward, we get knocked 100, you know, things like Tyree Nichols and uh, Mm -hmm. other situations. We get knocked, you know, two and three hundred steps back. You know, I just look at the chiefs that I know that have been open and honest about the history of law enforcement. David Kunkel, Bill Bratton. Uh, these are two strong white white males. Uh, uh, the, young, the young lady who was just uh, hired as the, the police superintendent in uh, in, law, in uh, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, these are these are white leaders who have spoken. Uh, you know, as you know, in, in um, uh, ICP. Uh, I cannot think of the outgoing president. And I do know chiefs, black and white, they will skate around the issue. They'll skate around. You know, well, do you have this? Do you believe you have this in your department? Well, I'd say, yeah, you, you, in this day and time, you have to say there is a possibility. Uh, am I 100% sure? No, but there is a possibility because you don't know what everybody's doing. You don't know what's in everybody's mind. And I think that's what people want to hear. I mean, the People don't want you start insulting their intelligence and say, oh, no, this would never happen or that's never happened. They they that's what upsets, uh, you know, the uh, communities, especially communities of color. Yeah, Keith, and I think you got to have these conversations. You can't be silenced about it. Uh, It's an uncomfortable conversation. But I think the more you have these uncomfortable conversations, the less silence there is about it, because silence says, oh, it's going to go over here and be in this corner. It's going to be put in the closet. Then when something else happens, then we're going to talk about it again. But then there's going to be silence about it again. Because as you know, unfortunately, there's going to be another incident similar to. God forbid. uh, Yeah. To uh, what happened in Minneapolis with. George Floyd, what happened in in uh, Ferguson with Michael Brown, what happened in Texas with Sandra Bland. There's going to be, or even the young man out in in Aurora, Colorado, that you know, uh, uh, who was just walking from a store home uh, and did not make it home safe. Mm-hmm. These things are going to continue to happen. Because, again, it's history repeating itself and we're not standing up to say enough is enough. And until we change the way we train police officers, until we start holding people more accountable on their first mess up, not their second or third, 
we're going to continue to to deal with this silence uh, of, of policing in America. But Virgil, the the policies and the and the and the preventative uh, techniques are there. Uh, it, it comes down to the fact of uh, let's just let's just call it what it is. The the organizations who represent the officers have more power at times than the chief. So no matter what members of these associations do, there's going to always they're going to be defended. And I've always said, quit saying that we def- we're here to defend our members. Say we're here to represent. Because saying defended means they didn't do anything wrong. Saying represented is their right to have representation. But when you when you can't discipline someone, or you have chiefs that say, "Well, I'm not going to fire them because I know they're going to get their jobs back," or "I'm not going to give them no more than this day's off because I'm going to have to sit in arbitration." I mean, mm-hmm. when you have that until we get control, until we as chiefs are able to run our departments without the fear of retaliation or the fear of votes of no confidence or things like that, we're not going to see changes. We're, we're, we're not going to see changes. There's a, there's an incident um, uh, in Tacoma that's going on right now, chief in Tacoma. Um, You know, he's being, he's being um, because because he apologized for the previous behavior of the police department. Mm-hmm. And all people can see is he's he's calling us racist. He's yeah. saying this. That's not what he said. Yeah, and we got to start. To, and and I I think sometimes that's done as an excuse to dislike someone because basically but what I'm not- is we just got to change the way we do things to make it where we have more emotional intelligence and we make it where all people feel comfortable in calling us when they need help. Yeah, well, Keith, and I think it's there that voice in the police community has a louder voice than, than, than those who really need to be standing up saying anything because that voice, if when somebody says, you know, the first, you mentioned something about race, first thing officers are going to say, are you saying we're racist? Well, no, not saying that you're racist. There are things that have happened within that department that are racist. You're not, you may, it's not saying that you are, but it's saying that things within this department has a history and a pattern of that. Now, why would you get offended by that versus trying to uh, put a stop to it, to it's eliminate called, It's called being defensive and basically trying to shut people out so that you don't have to hear the message. And the message is saying we're better than this. All we want to do is make sure everybody has the proper and the equitable response. That's all you're saying. Nobody's saying you're racist, whatever. Yeah. Well, again, Keith, you know, I think this is something that happens across the country, whether you're on the East Coast, the North, the Northwest, wherever you're at, there are problems with what we're talking about. The, the silencing the history of policing in America, because things have happened in departments where you're being silent about it. But you've got groups of people who are bragging about it and, and joking about it because, oh, hey, man, you know, we went out here and we did this here. And then you got young rookie officers who are hearing this here and they're saying, oh, well, that's acceptable. So you're not really changing the culture. You're just introducing that bad culture to a new generation. 
Well, I'm gonna tell you what a, I'm gonna tell you what a mentor of mine said one day. Don't take a chief's job that you can't afford to lose for doing the right thing. Well, you know, Keith, and I think that that is something that a lot of a lot of people who look like me and you, or who don't look like me and you, who say, "I've got this dream job. I don't want to lose it. I'm making this six figure salary. Man, my, I'm not too. I'm about four or five years away from my pension." I'm not going to screw this up. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And when you had an opportunity to correct some things, you don't, you're not going to do it because it's self-serving. It's benefiting you not to say something. Because if you say something, you're going to lose that. Well, I had a city manager uh, when I was in Norman. Uh, he he did not like to hear you say some something, somebody was racist or they, they were... Uh, uh, you know, microaggressive, uh, or and 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 to me, you know, it, it would he'd roll his eyes when you bring something up. But when you sit down and really listen to him, mm-hmm. you, he had some of those same um, attitudes. At, well, some of those same behaviors and thought yeah. patterns that some of the people you were talking, you know, talking yeah. about. And, uh, and was, so it's just, it's just, you know, it's it's crazy. You know, you know, Keith, and I say this, and I think, you know, you've got a lot of people who don't want to come, get out of their comfort zone. No. They they only come to the black community when it benefits them. If it, if it doesn't benefit them, if they don't see that there's something in it for them, they're not going to they're not going to do it. Well, well, well Virgil, that's not just that's that's people look like us, too. Well, it's people that looks like us, too, because, again, Keith, and I th- and I have to say this and some may get offended by it, but I think it's even I think it's even. It's even worse when people who look like me and you know where they came from, but they forget where they came from. But all of a sudden now I'm in this position. I'm a major city chief. I don't want somebody to screw it up because I don't want to go. But how at the end of the day, Keith, how can you live with yourself? How can you? Because at the end of the day, there's one person who's going to judge us. And I would rather say, you know what? I stood up for what's right, even if I lost something. Because guess what? You're going to struggle. But at some point, God is going to put you back where uh, where you need to where he wants you to be at. But again, you've got to have these conversations because if we didn't have a if if we didn't have police brutality key, what would policing look like? Man, it w- we wouldn't we wouldn't have a lot to talk about. Let's say this. Let's stop using brutality and use excessive force. Okay. Well, I yeah, I know people say it's it's synonymous the same, but let's just say yeah. I think for professional purposes and and being law enforcement professionals, I think it's cuz it's a use it's an excessive use of force. Yeah. Well, it's an excessive use of force, but you know, again, I think it's a. It's a but it's that's a, a term, and it's a word. But I think, I think, you know, as as professionals, I think that we need either you, you know, the public is going to say that, and that's their right to say that. But mm-hmm. it's it's it comes down to I I believe that we should say, and I have to catch myself saying it too, but mm-hmm. I think it's an excessive use of of force, um, yeah, and you know, up to an excessive use of deadly force. So I, I think that's just that's my opinion. I can't tell you what to do. I can't tell those who are uh, in well, the audience know, I, what to do. But man, I just think I, I think 
And I think that's just an opinion of a person who's reaching 72. Uh, Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, we definitely have won over our time, man. But I think this has been a a great uh, topic, another informative topic as we talk about solacing the history of policing in America on our, you know, the kickoff, uh, the first day of Black History Month. Uh, and, you know, Keith, I want to, you know, encourage all of our listeners to, uh, I think there are some things that I've even learned just by getting myself prepared for this podcast. We talk about Black History, where Black History Month came from. Uh, and I think it's important that we talk to our, our kids, our grandkids about, about it, because these are things that's not being taught uh, in, in elementary schools, or junior high, or even high school. So, uh, again, uh, it, it's it's uh, these are conversations that I, that I think have some substance to it. They do have substance to them, and, and I think that it's um, uh, necessary uh, to yeah. have, you know, uh, in, in 2024, not just in yeah. 23, 22, 21, 19, 18, whatever. It's, it's you know, current day is, is good also. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, brother, it's, it's good. It's been a, a pleasure as always, man. And uh, we've got a, another uh, a month to look forward to of having some guests come on the podcast and talk with them. And as we talk about uh, Black History Month and uh, so, uh, you know, man, uh, it's always, brother, it's good. It is, man. It is. It is really good, man. And uh you know, matter of fact, no, we're not going to be on Valentine's Day. I think I was, no, Valentine's Day. I think that's on a Wednesday. Yeah, so we're not going to be, uh, we won't be here Valentine's Day, but I, I got you. But, but but we're going to be on the day after. I got you Thursday. a gift. I got you a gift that I'm going to present it but to you. Live. Now, re- remember, we've got a guest coming on, so, you know, don't, don't be, you know, you got to think about what you're doing. Yeah, I, I got you, man. We, we got a guess, you know, so you got to be nice. It's already censored, man. Don't worry about it. Don't get, don't get nervous, man. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Yeah, don't be scared. Hey, hey, brother, man, I want to let uh, everybody know if you miss any of this uh, podcast, uh, you can uh, check out the rebroadcast on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can uh, check us out on Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, uh Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your uh, podcast streaming, just search you in the law and subscribe to us and follow us. Uh, because without you all, this wouldn't be possible. But we're going to continue to bring you all some very informative topics that they really matter. That that's just not talking about. We want to talk about good policing, but we also want to talk about how we can improve policing uh, to where. Uh, hopefully one day we don't have to continue to deal with the problems that we're seeing across the country. That is correct. All right. Well, brother, eloquently said, my man, eloquently said. Well, T Swaggy one, man, we will see you again next Thursday right here on you and the law podcast show. All right, my man. We'll see you later.